MailChimp presents. Have you ever heard of the dreaded customer? You know, it's when marketers throw their customers into one big messy group, failing to define them by their different needs or habits. It can show up when coupon codes meant for new customers are sent out to everyone, even return customers who can't use the discount. Basically, it's a mess. If you're a marketer, Intuit MailChimp can help you personalize your marketing campaigns so that you meet customers' individual needs instead of missing them. Turn customers into customers by personalizing emails and SMS based on real-time behavior data. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. SMS is available as an add-on to U.S. paid plans only. Visit MailChimp.com for details. Hey there. Just a heads up, this episode includes some detailed descriptions of difficult birth that could be tough for some folks. Please take care while listening. Parenting is an enormous trigger. And I would not change any of it for the world, but it is something to consider and think about and something I never thought about before I had children. Just how vulnerable you have to be and how willing you have to be to accept the fact that all of it could come crashing down and that would be okay too. L. Duncan, a hugely successful sports journalist, spent her 20s running from her traffic reporting jobs to her freelance sideline reporting jobs and climbing the ranks of sports broadcasting in Atlanta and then Boston. In her 30s, she joined ESPN, where she's now one of the nightly hosts on SportsCenter. This is SportsCenter with L. Duncan and Kevin Nagandi. Hey, oh, it's Thursday. Throwback, Kevin. Mm. When the Packers were an offensive force just four days ago, but is that enough tonight? Labor Day weekend is coming in hot. ESPN is home to the two biggest events on the sports calendar this weekend. We're getting ready for more rivalry doubleheader of MLS. Let's head to L. loves her job. And she intentionally put her career first for a long time. When she and her husband finally decided to have kids, she had a timeline. First kid at 35, second one by 38. Both conceptions came right on time. But then things didn't go according to plan. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, we're asking how people decide whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking to Elle Duncan about how to cope with the anxiety of parenting, especially when the unexpected happens. When you were growing up, did you have any enthusiasm about the idea of being a mother? Zero. 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 Tell me about that. Uh, my mother's father was a Tuskegee Airman, so he was, oh, wow. you know, big shit in Denver. And it was about society and being perfect and being beautiful and being all of these things and being a great wife and doing And it just, everything was about being a great support system to a great man. And I think that my mom just really rebuked that idea and was like, your goal in life is not to, like, 
you know, go to UGA and, you know, major in husbandry. Like your role is to be the best version of yourself. And then when it's time, at whatever point in your life, if it all comes together, you'll know what to look for. I knew early on when I started thinking about having a family, Ashley, that at the bare minimum, I didn't want to do it early. I knew that for sure. I said, if I do ever have kids, I will wait as late as possible because my career was most important. Wow. And... In the course of all this happening, of you creating the life that you wanted, um, you also met someone that you wanted to share your life with. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you decide that you were thinking about having kids? At what point did it become, okay, this is what I want and this is where I'm going? I was 30 when I met my husband. And I, I told him, I, you know, if having kids is something that you want, I could be open to it. But if you don't want to have kids, that is not a deal breaker for me. I'm kind of good either way. He said he wanted to have children. And what's funny, Ashley, is I told you before when I was like, I knew that if I did have kids, I didn't want to have them until later. I had always set 35 in my mind. Like, I'll get married. I'll have my first kid at 35. I'll have my second kid at 38. I'll be all wrapped up by 40. That was the plan. And the timing just started sort of working out where I was hitting career benchmarks that I wanted to, where I was having some financial stability, and where I had an incredibly stable partner. Because I knew as volatile as my job was, if I had someone else there that could sort of steady the ship, that it would make me feel better about taking work trips last minute, about moving all over the place, about having to leave. Right. And his confidence and sort of unwavering confidence to do this is when we decided after we got married that we would start trying. And frankly, I would have loved to have been married longer before we started having children. We were married one year before I got pregnant, but I felt like I did not have the benefit of time because as you know, Ashley, as soon as you hit 35, everyone warns you, geriatric, geriatric, your paperwork is different. The testing is different. Everything is different the second you hit 35 years old. And I felt very pressured to stick to the timeline and knock those kids out before 40. When you decided to have your first child, did you feel settled in your career? Like, okay, I've done what I set out to do, and now I can pursue this other thing? To show you where I was at when we were thinking about conceiving my daughter— I tried to time it with my husband so that we could get pregnant at a time that would allow me to have the baby in the summer, which on the sports calendar is just the like the the slowest time of the year. Like right. there's nothing going on. You can take as much time as you want off. You don't miss anything important. And sure enough, we were incredibly blessed that we were able to have the baby in July <laughs> because that's what I was most focused on. And I'm so mad at myself that something as insignificant as the football season and how many assignments I would get was more top of mind than simply just wanting to have a baby whenever that blessing happened. It was so intentional for me because I was not at a place in my career yet where I felt like, you know what? I'm good. Like, I'm going to take three months off and not care. I, I felt like I got my foot the door at ESPN, but like there's still so much climbing that has to happen once you get there. And right. I didn't feel like I was on super solid ground. It's wild to me that you were able to time this so well. But what happened when your daughter was born? 
Did that go according to plan? Eva's birth was really traumatic because I was never— God bless you ladies who say things like, I loved being pregnant. It was amazing. It was just me and my baby and with the greatest time. I'm sad I'm not pregnant. I did not. I hated it. When they say, girl, steal your ugly, they mean it. I had <laughs> eczema under my eyelash. How do you get eczema here? I had carpal tunnel. I had to sleep with arm braces on every night or I would wake up screaming and writhing in pain. It was just like, it was horrible. Wow. After four hours of just pushing, the doctor called it. He was like, her oxygen levels are falling. Clearly, there is something precluding her from coming out because she's crowning, but she won't come beyond there. We have to do an emergency C-section. So they do the emergency C-section. And at that point, I was so exhausted. I was like, thank God. I was praying he would call it. No one wants to have a C-section. But after four hours of pushing, I was like, I just have nothing left. I was so out of it that they had to wake me up during the surgery just so that I could, like, see my daughter because I was I was done. And, you know, listen, it all ended up being really good. She was fine. They took her to NICU for a minute just to make sure she was okay, but she was, she was great. And we went home and we thought, okay, that was the worst of it, and we're going to be okay from now because now we know, like, this is the worst possible thing that could happen. And so now we're in the clear for all future kids. <laughs> okay, so you've had— <laughs> And I always wonder about this, especially for people who have had tough births or who have had traumatic births. How do you decide on baby number two? So we always knew we wanted to have two kids. And um, I pretty much came to terms right away with the idea of like, okay, we're going to do this again. We're going to obviously give it some distance. But again, for me, it was it's timing. I was 35 when I got pregnant with Eva, but I had her at 36. So in my mind, okay, we have, what, 13, 14 months to, like, let this thing heal up and then go for it again if I want to do my 38 plan, if I want my kids to be exactly two years apart like I had always hoped. So we knew fairly early on we were going to do a second one. I just thought, in my mind, you've been through such a difficult birth. Like, this is going to be easier for you. So... Tell me the story of your son's birth. Yeah. So I get pregnant um, with my son exactly as planned, about 16 months after uh, I had Eva. So she's about 16, 17 months old. And um, everything's fine. You know, again, I'm geriatric, but I've been through this. We do the genetic testing. Like, everything's good. We know everything's fine. Pretty straightforward. The doctor did tell me that based on my circumstances with my daughter— I had only a 10% chance of giving birth naturally. And so he said, do you want to just go ahead and schedule the C-section? It'll be a business trip. This is literally how I described it. It'll be a business trip. You'll go in. We'll cut the baby out. You'll have the baby two hours later. You'll go home two days later. Whatever. None of this messy labor stuff, you know? He's like, he's like <laughs> making it sound like it's going to be a vacation. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, based on what I went through last time, this would be great. Come in. Like, oh, I'll have a sandwich by noon. And so we go in and everything's super routine. And I do. I go in, I check in, I'm getting ready for surgery. Everything's fine. So when I'm having the surgery, the doctor just keeps going, all right, um, okay, give me the this and give me the that. Xander was stuck in my uterus. So even though they cut the stomach open, they still have to get the baby out, right, of the cervix. Right. And he would not come. Like wouldn't come. And my doctor's like, well, this is a little, um, this is a little, you know, non-traditional. Uh, he won't come out. He's like, so I'm going to have to put great pressure 
on you right now. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it in your lungs. And potentially, you're going to feel it for the next few days. But I have to get your baby out. So he he's almost standing on me. Like he's almost got his entire weight on my belly and he's going, come on, come on. And finally you hear almost like a pop and the baby slides out. So because they had used forceps and all these other things, I'm expecting that his head's going to look a little crazy. And it did. Like he comes out, they give him to me, but he did have some fluid on his lungs like many C-section babies do. So they said, everything looks good, but we're going to take him to NICU for observation because he's got a little fluid. So they're like, he'll probably be back in your room in a couple of hours. Cool. They take him off and um, we go to my room and and I'm recovering and uh, he's still in NICU and he's still in NICU and he's still in NICU. And then I got to a point where they're like, well, we're going to observe him for another day. The fluid's still there. And I'm like, I I still haven't even like held, held my baby. Like, can I see my baby? It's 13, 14 hours after he's been born. So I get to the NICU and he's in an incubator, which is as horrible as it sounds, right? And I'm trying to hold his hand through like the plastic glove that you're allowed to stick your fingers in and touch him. And I'm just devastated. I'm like, what in the world, you know? And I get back to the room and the neonatologist comes in and she's like, I want to talk to you about your son. And I'm like, is it the fluid on his lungs? And she's like, no. She's like, that's going to take care of itself. I'm not worried about that. It happens all the time. She's like, but I think that your son might have a condition. And she's like, well, I know that your husband said that Dr. Mahalik used forceps on him and whatnot, but his head is shaped very odd. And I was thinking, well, most babies' heads are shaped odd, right? Like when they're first born or whatever. And she was like, he also has an absence of a soft spot as all of us know, little kids have soft spots, right, in their head because their skull is not completely closed yet. That's what allows their skull to grow as their brain grows as they get bigger. And so she said he has no soft spot and he has bossing and protruding in his forehead. And I think he might have a rare condition called craniosynostosis. And I was like, what is that? Right. She's like, basically, it's when the sutures along your head close too early. So to describe what his head looked like at birth, I mean, he looked like it came to a point in the back like a football, and then his forehead was so big that his eyes almost looked sunken in because his forehead was sticking out, it was swelling. And I don't know what any of this is. She tells me the only way for intervention is surgery. You have to have a craniectomy. And that with this particular condition, Time is of the essence, because if you do it early, you've got more options. If you wait, you've got fewer options. And it was, uh, as you can imagine, incredibly devastating. Of course. I can't imagine. Honestly, I can't. I don't think it's the kind of thing you can until it happens to you. You can think about it. You can sit with a person in their sadness and in their fear, but you can't know. And I can't imagine on, on, on top of the fear, on top of the sadness, what a loneliness. What a loneliness. That's the perfect word to describe, Ashley, loneliness. Because when you're the mom, you bear all of the responsibility for your baby. It's my job to get him out safely. It's my job to protect him for 10 months, to eat the right things, to do the right things, to lay the right way, to stay away from certain things. It's my job. Yeah. And I felt like I failed. He came out and he was 
not perfect. And I just laid in that hospital bed while my husband was in NICU with him because my husband didn't even know at the time. She told me all this while he wasn't there. And I just started racking my brain. What did I eat? I tripped one time, like, but I didn't think I fell that bad. What did I do? Like, what? How could I have done this? Why am I so selfish? Like, you're geriatric. You did this. Like, they always say, you know, geriatric pregnancies, there's more risk of conditions and issues for your children the later that you wait. And, like, I was so selfish. And I did this to him. It was so lonely because I just felt like I failed everybody. What's wild is that you took that 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 pain and that loneliness. And I could definitely see myself getting lost inside of that, going deeper into that, spiraling into that. You talked about it. I have to tell you that I have never in my life <laughs> understood more the benefit of Facebook groups or of support groups I've been to therapy my whole life, but I never really understood the value of sitting in a room or talking with people that you don't know and everyone looking at each other and going, none of us know what we're doing and this is scary for everybody and you're not alone. And there was just this incredible community of support of women who were going through this or women who had been through this, women that were at the exact same point that I was, trying mm-hmm. to identify neurologists to treat my six-week-old. You know, what's the long-term prognosis? Like, what does this look like when they're 20? And what I've learned, actually, is the more that you talk about things, the more commonality you find with people and experiences. And then I started, like, looking at other stories and connecting with other people and realizing that, like, I'm not alone at all in this, mm-hmm. not in my feelings, not in my fear. And I think what I needed more than anything at the time, Ashley, was permission to smile, mm. permission to be in love with my newborn. But joy comes in the morning, right? Yes. It, I cried all day, every day for a week, <laughs> and then a little less after that. And then when I started figuring out that this was not only fixable, but that the long-term outlook was fantastic, that it was mostly cosmetic, you know, this mm-hmm. is not brain surgery, it was skull surgery. They weren't touching his brain. They were taking a strip of bone out. So when I think about that dark time, it's 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 complicated because I also think that I saw some of the best that people have to offer. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Bloom Season. Immediately, we got over 40,000 downloads that first month. An independent, queer-owned platform. Meet Kel Rakowski, the founder and CEO of Lex, an app for LGBTQ plus people to find and create connections of all kinds. I came out in my early 30s, and even living in New York City, I felt really isolated from queer community. I didn't really have friends to go to parties with. I was kind of stuck using apps that were meant for dating to find friends. Aside from the apps, Kel was mostly using her socials to share about lesbian history. As engagement with her content grew, it planted the seed for creating a dedicated space to find like-minded people. 
Now, roughly two years later, her app Lex has taken root. There's this really specific review in the app store that happens to be amazing. It's one person being like, Lex is the best. They've found best friends on it, their roommate on it, folks to help care for them after top surgery. They've found dates. They've organized basketball meetups, done yoga, like top to bottom your whole life. They've found connection through Lex. And that is the most beautiful thing. Kel herself understands how deep a bond made online can go. I was a teenager in the 90s, so it was really hard to connect with people that were like you. So I felt super isolated, and I remember being introduced to AOL, and I just found really cool friends. I became best friends with this one guy. I convinced him to go to the same art school that I went to. We met the first day of class. (laughs) We were inseparable. Creating community is not only at the core of Lex, it's also Kel's goal for the people who work with her. At Lex, we have birthdays off, and then we also have every other Fridays off. If you need to go out for a walk, get fresh air, hey, I'm kind of blocked, I need a break. It's just a place to let people know and encourage that kind of rest that you can take in the middle of your workday. However, we're curating our community and nurturing our community on the Lex app. We're making sure that we're doing it with our team. Learn more about Kel Rakowski and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash BloomSeason. And now, back to the episode. Okay, it seems like you've gained a lot of perspective about your career ambition and how that relates to your family. But it's not like your job became less demanding. You're now on ESPN's flagship show every night, and you've got two small kids at home. I'm just wondering how you balance these things. Are you memorizing Paw Patrol characters at the same time as you're memorizing player stats? Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, if I don't know who's on Paw Patrol, my daughter will tell me, no, like like a dummy. No, mommy, that's not Marshall. That's Chase. I'm like, my bad. I'm so sorry. Honestly, I approach it day by day, Ashley, when I'm trying to think of how to make it all work. I'll say this. I am so privileged, with a capital P, that I have a job and am afforded an income and a situation that allows me to, quote unquote, seemingly have it all. Mm -hmm. I have the resources to have a nanny, okay? I have the resources to tell my husband, leave your government job Take a job that you enjoy, one that gives you more flexibility so that you can be with our kids when I can't be. I have the privilege of having two parents that retired at the same time and moved to within 15 minutes from me so that they could also come and support. And so I say all of these things is I hate using myself as an example for women. They ask me that all the time. How do you make it work? What do you do? How do you have it all? And the truth is, like anything else in life, you can have it all with resources. And it should not require the Herculean effort or the amount of money that I have to make that work. And unfortunately, in this country, it's like you have this baby and then you're just out there on an island. Good luck. Hope it works. In some ways, your story seems like an intensified version of 
what many parents go through, which is like Mm -hmm. you suddenly have this constant fear, constant anxiety about the well-being of another person, a person who you made in your body. The, their bones are came from your bones. Yeah. <laughs> Has the experience with your son changed the way you deal with natural fear and anxiety of parenthood on a day-to-day basis? What happened to my son has absolutely not helped my anxiety (laughs) or fear on any level at all, ever. Um, I am by nature an anxious person. I go to therapy for it. And it has been a huge issue for me and one that I work through daily, trying to find a way to be so grateful and to sit so much in my gratefulness that all of the what-if monsters go away, the vulnerability of being a parent is the hardest part for me. Mm. Like the no sleeping and all of those things, that sucks, right? But the hardest part for me is how vulnerable children make you. Because while I always had a healthy fear of dying, there was nothing like knowing that my death could impact two people so significantly based on when I die. Mm. And I know that sounds nuts, but it's like, I just, I I pray to God all the time. I'm not audacious enough to think that I deserve a long life or any of those other things. But I pray all the time, please just let me get to a point where their mother no longer being here anymore would not affect them or impact them so foundationally and significantly that they could never recover. So parenting is my trigger. It is based on my personality and what happens in my brain. Parenting is an enormous trigger. And I would not change any of it for the world, but it is something to consider and think about and something I never thought about before I had children, just how vulnerable you have to be and how willing you have to be to accept the fact that all of it could come crashing down and that would be okay too. It's uh, it's not easy, but I have a great dose of perspective and I have always leaned heavy into my perspective, and I also rally, you know? And so I talk myself out of things, out of dark places that I try to spiral to, and I say, live in this moment and be grateful for this moment, because even if trauma is coming, something you can't predict or change, you will have at least enjoyed all of these moments, as opposed to tainting all of them with a tragic brush, right? Ooh. Oh, my gosh. That... <laughs> that... It's such a worry for me. You know, it never, it never ends. And I think that coming to terms with that has been the best thing for me to do, to just accept the fact that I will be anxious Mm -hmm. and that I will have anxieties and that sometimes it will come and go a little bit better, but that I have to figure out a way to manage them better when it comes to having my kids because it does not change. And I wish I could say like, There's some point where you're like, oh, I worry a lot less. But if you have that, if it's innate in you, you just have to learn how to compartmentalize it, truly. And the beautiful things with kids is that they give you so many moments of joy and, yes, frustration and all of those things as well. But they give you these little nuggets to hold on to so that when you're in your mind and you're in your head and you're spiraling, they do something so silly or so sweet or just so perfect for the moment and they pull you out of it. And that's what my kids do. And I look for those moments. I say, what can I do right now to pull me out of this thing that I'm doing in my head? What's one of these little nuggets? Can you give me an example? 
you know, t- today she's crying because she doesn't want to go to school. And, you know, I'm crying because I'm about to go out of town and I'm going to miss my kids. And we get in the car and neither one of us are talking to each other because I'm already exhausted by her. Mm-hmm. And she said, Mommy, I know that you have to go, but it's okay, Mommy, because you always come back and you'll come back and we'll be fine. And we'll be okay, Mommy, and I love you. And I just started bawling because, of course, the other part of parenting is all of the guilt. And um, anytime you leave, in particular the mother, you feel so much guilt. And for her to just give me a pass to go to work and say, you always come back, like, that, that's the little things that you hold on to, you know? It's so much. It's so stressful. It's no leisure time. It's no sleeping. It's so much anxiety, but it is, it is the most important thing that I've ever done and ever will do. You speak about this with a clarity that I'm just not used to. I'm I'm not used to having conversations about the anxiety of parenthood that are so clear. So thank you. Thank you for that. I love that. Thank you, Ashley. I, I think it's it can be hard to talk to other parents. They want to recruit you on Team Parent. They like do. They're going to complain. <laughs> they're going to commiserate, but they don't want to scare you away. And so they don't want to tell you the truth. But I think that having knowledge is the best thing that we can have when we're trying to make really big decisions. Asking ourselves, why does this feel so big? And how can I alleviate some of that anxiety with research, with thoughtfulness, with asking questions? And that's what you're doing, Ashley. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And there is no wrong answer and no wrong decision at all. Whatever you choose to do, it's exactly what you were supposed to do. Thank you so much, Al. Especially in parenting, even when you plan well, things don't always go according to plan. And for someone with anxiety, that can make parenting sound impossible. But talking to Elle reminds me that the two can coexist, that the fun, touching, and joyful moments you have as a parent can make you brave enough to get through the moments of stress, fear, and uncertainty. And I hope that if I were somebody's parent, I'd be that brave too. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. Our associate producers are Marina Hankey and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davey Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producer is J.N. Berry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. 
We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. So you want to craft an email marketing strategy, but you're not exactly sure where to start. Why not take a cue from Pack Up and Go? It's a surprise travel company that reveals their clients' destinations on the morning of their trips. The folks at Pack Up and Go designed a marketing plan that would both answer customer questions while also building their brand. Here's how they did it. Pack Up and Go started by using their customer-generated content to show off all these amazing trips that they offer building a loyal community of fans in the process. And then they used MailChimp segmentation capabilities and email automations to send targeted messages that reached relevant audiences, like an automated campaign to new customers, reminding them to purchase PackUp & Go's travel insurance. With MailChimp's help, the marketing team at PackUp & Go has created a plan that works for them. Start crafting your email marketing strategy today at MailChimp.com. <laughs> 